Welcome to the second half of our mailbag podcast. We're finishing up the listener emails and answering the last group that I have good answers to. I only chose questions I thought I had something either unique or tactically helpful to say, or occasionally if I thought I had a good joke. Today, we go through how to run a test pre-product, how to deal with stress as a founder, how niche is too niche for your business, and what business I'd start in the NFT world. All of my thoughts are based on 400 startups coming through Tacklebox the past six years and building all sorts of businesses, from one-person service businesses to massive venture-backed companies. An alum of ours just closed a $50 million round this week. As I sorted through answers to these questions, I realized my answers all have to do with figuring out the systems you can build to ensure the best chance of success. It's become astonishingly clear these past six years that when you rely on your own diligence or motivation, you're in big trouble. Nearly every question we got was best answered by zooming out and asking why this question came up in the first place, making sure we weren't curing symptoms and were after the actual root cause, which was almost always a system that was fundamentally broken. That's hard to do on your own, the zooming out thing. It nearly always requires an outside set of eyes. If you'd like that outside set of eyes to be us, Email us questions at team at gettacklebox.com and you might find yourself in the next mailbag. And as always, each submission gets the asker of the question the butteriest of all buttery soft t-shirts with a small, tasteful idea to start up logo on it. If you want one of those, shoot us a question at team at gettacklebox.com. And now, onto the questions and the jazzy music. This episode is brought to you by Orr. Orr provides science-backed treatment for people who are ready to change their relationship with alcohol on their own terms. It's run by a Tacklebox alum who simply could not be more talented, and the business has grown extremely fast. There are a bunch of different job openings ranging from engineering to product to strategy to social media. I'll pop them all in the show notes. Take a look and email jonathan at oarrx.com. Take a look at the site too at oarrx.com. On Jonathan, he's as talented, smart, driven, and compassionate a founder as I have ever met. His success makes me incredibly happy. And a quick obligatory Tacklebox method plug that I'll get in trouble if I don't include. If you're working on a startup idea and you're stuck, head to gettacklebox.com and click on the Tacklebox method link. It's a step-by-step process that'll let you see your startup's potential and the first few steps are free if you register. And while we're here, here's what Jonathan had to say about his time in Tacklebox right after he finished the program. I was feeling stuck and uncertain of what to do next. Tacklebox focused me on customer testing and validation versus all the other potential tasks and created an ambitious schedule and effective accountability structure. Great, back to it. We got a whole bunch of emails on the gluten-filled pasta idea. Not as many as Tuesday Wine Company, our half bottle of wine service for Tuesday nights, which still gets like five emails a week, but a lot. The most interesting emails and texts were on the feasibility of starting a business like this. To take a quick step back, for those of you that have no idea what I'm talking about, three weeks ago, we did an episode titled Vertical Farms, Robert Frost and Growth. The cliff notes are that we toyed around with an idea for gluten-filled pasta for people with gluten sensitivities. The premise is that gluten isn't actually what causes reactions for the overwhelming number of people who think they're sensitive to gluten. It's the pesticides in the wheat. Pesticides are poison, so unsurprisingly, lots of people have poor reactions to food with heavy pesticides in them. 
Specifically, wheat is, quote, soaked in Roundup before being harvested. Delightful. Gluten itself isn't inherently bad for you unless you're one of the very small percentage of people with celiac. Roundup probably is. Since lots of countries in Europe don't use pesticides like we do in the U.S. on wheat, people who think they have gluten sensitivities happily eat pizza and pasta there. That insight, combined with my obsessive interest in vertical farms, led to an idea I'm now calling Wheat No More, a pasta company that makes pesticide-free pasta by leveraging vertical farms that don't use pesticides to grow the wheat. People with gluten sensitivities would be able to eat it without consequence. Now that you're caught up, let's get back to people's questions. The toughest and most fun one to talk through was this, quote, I love the idea, but how would you test it without building a whole freaking vertical farm, which would have massive upfront costs? How do you know if people actually want this? I ended up emailing back and forth with this listener a bit, and it turns out they're building an outdoor furniture startup and are facing a problem that rhymes. The premise of their business is that outdoor furniture stinks. There aren't brands that resonate with the all-powerful millennial, and taking the furniture inside when it rains or in the winter is a pain in the ass. He lost me when he said he'd be the Warby Parker for outdoor furniture, but he won me back a bit after saying his first job after college was selling boats, and he'd use that uber-sturdy material from boat seats to make indestructible cushions. But now what? He doesn't have 100 k to get a run of the chairs made, and while lots of people say they like his idea, that's way different than shelling out $1,500 for an outdoor furniture set. Lots of founders hit this moment. You've reached the limits of your hustling. And the advice from blogs or successful entrepreneurs are unhelpful at best and downright bad advice at worst. Usually things like, well, we had this idea, it got some press, and we got 5,000 pre-orders, so we built it. Cool. You don't have that, so what do you do? Let's think through it with Wheat No More. The most important thing you've got to do is build a plan. Start with a hypothesis and run a test to prove it or disprove it so you can make progress or not. The nebulous world of maybe people want this furniture won't fix itself, and randomly moving forward on a bunch of different things like sort of trying to raise money and sort of trying to find a co-founder while you sort of apply to accelerators is not going to get you anywhere. A magical book I grew up reading called The Phantom Tollbooth calls this stage the doldrums. Testing helps you escape the doldrums. Your hypothesis needs to come from your riskiest assumption, or what we call at Tacklebox, the frog. There's an old saying by Mark Twain that goes, eat a live frog first thing in the morning and nothing worse will happen to you the rest of the day. As a founder, you've got to identify the uncomfortable, important thing you're dreading and handle that first. For wheat no more, it might not be what you think. My biggest assumption isn't whether the insight about pesticides is right or not. My inbox is literally filled with anecdotes from people with gluten sensitivities in the US who traveled to Italy and ate a pizza for an appetizer every meal which is definitely the play if you go there, by the way. In fact, a good friend emailed saying he and his wife now import pasta from Italy just so that she can eat it. The biggest assumption for wheat no more is that pasta made from wheat without pesticides is compelling enough that it'll change people's behavior. Right now, people with gluten sensitivities in the U.S. don't eat wheat. I need to change that. It's a big deal, and frankly, it's going to be hard, which means it's got to be tested first. An assumption test has four components. First, a customer. Second, a channel. Third, a behavior you're trying to facilitate. And fourth, a tactic you'll use to encourage that behavior. 
It's critical that you be hyper-specific on each component so that you can run multiple tests with controls and swap out variables when needed. For customer, always start with whoever's got the juiciest problem, a problem that's painful, urgent, expensive, frequent, and growing, a problem they're acutely aware of, and a problem that has inflection points you can target. If that last sentence was confusing or overwhelming at all, email me at brian at gettacklebox.com. Identifying first customer is the thing founders screw up the most. It's the most painful thing to screw up, and we have literally unlimited content to help you choose a customer, so reach out. The customer we'll start with is a customer with gluten sensitivities who's traveled to Italy and eaten pizza and pasta there without incident. Maybe this customer even started importing pasta from Italy, or had the idea that maybe they would. They eat gluten-free pasta, but are devastated by it each time because they love the real thing and they know how much better it is. If this customer seems really specific, it is, and that's a good thing. For the channel, I'll be lazy. We'll try Instagram. We'll target people that follow gluten-free cooking accounts, recipe accounts, and influencers. I'll stick with people in the New York City area for no reason other than if we do get customers, I'd love to make it as easy as possible for me to sit down and have a bowl of pasta with them. For behavior, I'm trying to get them to buy, so we need to think about the friction involved in buying something new, which is ample. What would keep people from buying wheat no more? When you think friction, always separate it into headwinds and tailwinds. What keeps your customer from you and what pushes your customer towards you? The headwinds would be the worry of getting sick. They've never heard of wheat no more, and they'd have to take a serious leap of faith to try it. The tailwinds would be a lack of urgency to try something new. People have plenty of food. Why would they want to go out on a limb to try a new pasta brand? The tactics I'll use are urgency and loss aversion, straight out of the behavioral economics textbook and direct responses to those points of friction. I'll build a quick landing page that says we're importing 500 boxes of Italian pasta that's made with zero pesticides. I'll say it's totally safe for people with gluten sensitivities, not celiac, to eat. Our first 100 signups will get a five box allocation. Our call to action will be access your allocation. Once the 500 boxes are gone, they're gone and you're stuck with cassava rigatoni. There's a bunch of other copy I'd wanna try. Things like you ate gluten in Italy, we import pasta so you can eat it here too. I'd use the same flow and just see which was the most compelling. I'd build a landing page on Wix and I'd hire someone on Fiverr to create a quick logo. Wix integrates nicely with Stripe, that would handle our payment processing. I'd probably spend 250 bucks on ads, maybe 300, and roughly $200 on Fiverr for the designs. If people ended up buying, I've already found a number of white-labeled pasta distributors in Italy that use local, Italian wheat, and no products from outside the country. But honestly, I might just refund everyone who buys decide it was a worthwhile test, and then start taste testing white-labeled pasta, or partner with the chef at Lartuzzi and see which pasta he liked the best. More importantly, I'd reach out and learn more about the people who did buy, what resonated, what made them take the leap. And that's how I'd run my first round of tests for Wheat No More to try and test that riskiest assumption, would anyone actually buy? And now, maybe I will run those tests. Stay tuned. Next question. I have an idea for a super niche business. How niche is too niche? I know you say to start small, but when is it not even worth my time? This is a good question that I get all the time. The answer depends on what type of business you want to build, 
But in general, I don't think there's a niche too small to support some type of a good business if the problem is there. Not all great businesses are big businesses. In fact, lots of great businesses are small businesses. I came across a brilliant, tidy little business last week. My driver's license is up for renewal and I needed to get an eye test. Obviously, there's nothing I want to do less in this world than go to the DMV or eye doctor and get an eye test. So I googled online eye tests for driver's license and the top result was an ad for New York DMV Vision Registry. Their first line said, New York driver's license renewal eye test. Take your $49 eye test, renew your license entirely online. Amazing. I scheduled an appointment for 20 minutes later. I had a virtual eye test where a doctor jumped into a Zoom and showed me letters after measuring my screen and made me stand 10 feet away. It took less than five minutes. Then they submitted my eye test and renewed my license for me. Niche, tight, room for growth, tidy. I'll always believe that problem plus urgency plus acquisition channel will equal a viable business. It's very rarely the size of the niche that inhibits a business being built. It's the characteristics of the problem. If the problem is painful, urgent, expensive, frequent, and growing, even if it's only for 100 people, there's probably something there. Email us with your tidy little businesses. We absolutely love thinking through them. Next question. Quote, any tips for handling stress of a startup? This is one of the most frequent and important questions that we get. From someone who worries a ton about nearly everything, I have an 85-pound dog who plays in the dog park on the Upper West Side with a bunch of 12-pound toy doodles all day, and I still stand 18 inches away as if Ruby's playing with a rabid bear. I have thought about this stuff a lot. What's helped me is to remember that everything that's ever come up, you've found a way to deal with. The next thing will be no different. If your startup doesn't work, you'll be fine. If your co-founder leaves, you'll be fine. Whatever happens, you will be able to deal with it. You've dealt with everything to this point, and you'll deal with everything that comes after this point. That doesn't mean you shouldn't work like hell, but the worrying and the dreading, all of that is artificial. One of my favorite pieces of advice on stress comes from Bruce Lee. He said, be formless, shapeless, like water. You put water into the cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put water into a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. As for what I do about stress, the first step is to identify what you're actually stressing over. Stressing and worrying used to be about real physical harm. You almost certainly don't have anything life-threatening facing you, so we need to figure out what it actually is. You're likely worrying about what people in 2021 dread the absolute most, which is making a hard decision. Usually that specific hard decision is hidden by the vague thing you're worrying about. Let's take the example of the person who emailed this question. She left her job to work on her startup full-time and she's stressed because she's blowing through her savings and she has no customers yet. What's the actual underlying decision she's afraid of making? It's actually probably two decisions. First, the decision of whether she needs to find another income stream. And second, the decision of whether she should abandon her startup altogether. These decisions make you feel insecure. You thought your business was ready to support you. It wasn't. But they shouldn't make you feel insecure. What they should make you feel is human. We're horrible at predicting what will happen and worse at predicting how long something will take to happen. 
you're not necessarily a bad entrepreneur, but you are maybe unfortunately a human. Now that we've identified those decisions, let's tackle each. What can you do to get an income stream? What's the fastest way to make the most money that ideally stays in line with what you're building? The first thing I'd do is to reach out to the job you left and say you're opening up two days a week to work and wanted to give them the first chance to hire you. As we all learned from Ryan in the office, it's 10 times harder to get a new client than to sell to an existing one. Always tap your existing network first. I'd set aside two hours a day for two weeks to find out what your options actually are. On the second decision, should you abandon your startup, first read The Dip by Seth Godin. Next, break your idea into first principles. What are the things that need to be true for your business to work? Then set up experiments to test those. Give yourself three months to get customers to do what you need them to do. Remove the fluff. Worrying is actually a blessing because the decision you're dreading or ignoring is exactly the thing you need to be focused on, but in a constructive way. Embrace the worry, figure out the root. Be water, my friend. There are a few more questions I wanted to hit, but I didn't want this to get too long, and I have a few people to pull in for a few answers. We'll do another mailbag at some time relatively soon. We were going to tackle bootstrapping versus raising money, but that works much better with diagrams and visuals and isn't really great radio. So if you're interested and aren't already subscribed, head to gettacklebox.com and sign up for our newsletter. You'll see that there. I hope the Q&A was a fun break. We'll get back to story form and interviews starting next week. Thanks to everyone who submitted questions and have a great week. This was the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and you want to test it out in the margins and see if what you're working on has legs, head to gettacklebox.com and click on the Tacklebox method.